from Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this week's episode, Rabbi Goldberg and co-host Rabbi Philip Moskowitz are joined by Eitan and Varda Morel, parents of Staff Sergeant Maoz, who died heroically in Gaza. Hashem Yimkom Demo. Maoz was a brave and heroic soul who made the ultimate sacrifice defending our people and our land. In moments of unfathomable loss and sacrifice, we find the true essence of courage, love, and the indomitable spirit of our nation. Today's conversation is not just a story of valor and sacrifice, but a testament to the enduring strength of families who stand at the forefront of defending our values and our homeland. Plus, BRS is in the midst of their global campaign. All this and more behind the Bima. Hi, I'm Rabbi Goldberg. I'm Rabbi Moskowitz. I'm Rabbi Brody. We're coming to you from in front of the Bima to talk to you about the annual BRS Global Campaign. If you enjoy our articles, listen to our shirim, or benefit from behind the Bima, you are not going to want to miss this opportunity to give a little back. Because you know that there is nowhere that you can get content like this anywhere else, and we need your help to support it. BRS Global is our opportunity every year to reach out to you, to invite you, to partner, to collaborate, and to empower us to continue to reach people through Shiurim, through Behind the Bima, through podcasts and panels and articles and discussions. We need your help to reach more people, to inspire more people. This year, we've given you an incentive. You give $180 to the BRS Global campaign, you get a raffle ticket. What's in the raffle? Yishai Rebo, a weekend in Boca Raton Synagogue. And time with this guy. Time with all of us. A great job. It's in person. Two domestic plane tickets to South Florida. Yishai Ribo VIP. And special opportunity to spend time with... Rabbi Brody. With Rabbi Brody. So go to <laughs> brsonline.org slash global. brsonline.org slash global. And join our global community today. Thank you. It's a true honor to go behind the bima with Eitan Morel, the uh, father of Staff Sergeant Maoz Morel, Hashem Yikom Damo, Zichrono Levracha, one of the heroic, brave, courageous soldiers who tragically gave his life really defending our people and our land. And uh, we begin, Eitan, by just telling you how much our community here in Boca Raton, and, and we know Jews around the world, are sending you love and support and comfort, and, and our hearts are broken with yours and pained with you and, and not only Maoz not being part of your family, but the world not having the opportunity to learn and grow and be inspired by the future that undoubtedly he was going to to bring. And, and so just to simply communicate that and transmit our, our love to you and our, our heartfelt feelings to you. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us. No problem. So maybe, you know, Eitan, if you could start, just just tell us when where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about your, your family and where you live. And, and being I grew up there. in uh, upstate New York, a place called Binghamton. It's a small oh. town with uh, very few Jews and even fewer from Jews. We were one of just a handful of families who were Shom Shabbos there. And I was born there and I lived there my whole life until I came to Israel after I graduated high school in 1988. And uh, I've been in Israel ever since, I'm with 35 years. And uh, yeah, Binghamton was a very special place to grow up. Uh, um, we never, since there are very few from Jews, I always felt that we sort of grew up in a little bubble where whatever we did, that was what was done. I had no anything else to, uh, I knew nothing else. Right. Right. <laughs> we didn't have any pressure at all. <laughs> and those of us that grew up there uh, in those years of the 70s, almost everyone remained from. Almost right. all the people. Wow. I was just talking about this during the Shiva with someone, an old-time Binghamton person, uh, the principal of our school there. He came there in 1972, and he had four from families in the entire school and all of their children are all still from today, which was, I think, an amazing uh, fact. So it was a that's, wonderful That's place. such an interesting phenomenon. And it's true. Binghamton, Albany, Rochester, those communities we know and we have in our community, people from those places. I don't know. Binghamton. All those places are bigger than Binghamton. Rochester, Albany, Syracuse, Buffalo right. are all bigger than Binghamton. Got it. <laughs> Got it. Got it. And did you and you stayed after high school? So did did you grow up in a Zionist home? Where did you get that? Yeah, I grew devotion? up in a Zionist home. My father was a professor at the University of Judaic Studies. He was professor of Judaic Studies. He taught Hebrew at the university in town. 
And he would, every seven years, get a sabbatical. We would come to Israel. We went to uh, uh, Camp Moshavan the summer, B'nai Akiva camps. I went to uh, away to from high school. To MT, I went to MTA. Um, yeah, we were pretty, I would say, traditionally Zionist from family. Just and, and that inspired you to stay. When you stayed, where, where did you stay? How did you stay? Did you go to Israel? I came to Israel for the year in Elul Tavshem Memchet, 1988. And I came to Shalavim for the year, and that was 35 years ago. So wow. I did a year in Shalavim, like people do, Shana Bet. Nowadays, it's more standard. Less that Those days, it was a little more of a thing. And then I stayed an additional year where I served in the Israeli army. Wow. An additional year. And then after that, I went back to Yeshiva for another six months. And then I tried out. My parents really wanted me to. I went to YU for two semesters. I did not love being in America. And I mean, YU was okay, but I wanted really to be in Israel. So after that, I came back to Israel. And I went to university in Barilan, where that year I met my wife. And we got married in 1993. And uh, this is where it's incredible. Did your family... You had family in Israel, or were you just you were no? The, uh, I did not have any family in Israel. My sister made Aliyah a year and a half ago, but for the past uh, thirty something years, I really didn't have any close family in Israel. We have distant relatives who are not religious, who live on a kibbutz, and that's it. Um, now I have a sister here, and I have my children and my grandchildren. It's amazing that, that you said you joined the army. It's more popular now. It's hard to say popular now, but more popular now. Rabbi Brody has a daughter who, who joined the army, served in, in the army in Israel. Um, what, what inspired that when people around you weren't doing that? I'll tell you. Um, I knew that I wanted to live in Israel. I didn't know then that I was going to be staying. Mm -hmm. But I felt that if I wanted to be fully a part of Israeli society to understand the nuances, to feel that I was equal to everyone in Israeli society. I knew serving in the army was one of the crucial things to make that happen. And I was, that was, I think, one of my major motivations looking back on it. And uh, looking back now, from my perspective now, I know that that was 100% correct. So interesting. Rabbi Goldberg mentioned it's more popular now for, for graduates to go into the army. But back then, did they... Did they think of you like like what, what were you? Did they embrace you? Did they think they well, have long you, right? Were you um, so first of all, I have four other friends. This was very very unusual. I had right. four other friends that went to the army together with me from Shalavim, like Americans. It was very unusual, and I think I was the first one. Like I was like going to the and then and then they all joined in. So we were five of us together, and so that that helped. And I will say that the five of us are very, very, very close, uh, even till today. Uh, they played a major role in the last 10 days of my life and what was everything that's going on now. And uh, they're like my family here in Israel. We, you know, it's my my fault. The miscommunication Varda is not able to join us for this conversation. But can can you tell us a little bit about how she ended up? Um, you met at Barilan. Yeah, she, She's here in the background. And she just oh. hears it. She, she'll join us in two minutes. Okay, great. So we'll get we'll get the we'll get the we'll join us in two minutes. So. We'll get the environment. What did you study in Barilan? Uh, Arabic, Middle Eastern studies. Wow. Uh, and a little Jewish history. Nothing I could do anything with, really. <laughs> Nothing to do with what, what was, I do now. What was the plan? What did you want to become? I had no plan. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a home of uh, my father was a professor, so you know we. In those days, the liberal arts was still a thing. Nowadays, it's unheard of. Right. Um, and uh, I didn't really have a plan, <laughs> honestly. Um, but Baruch Hashem, uh, things have worked out over the years. I, Amazing. And where do you live today? I live in a yeshuv uh, called Talmon. Huh. Uh, not Talmond. Taf Lamed Mem Vav Nundalid. That's near Ranana, more known amongst Americans. Talmud. This is Talmon. In English, it would be T-A-L-M-O-N, Tet Lamed Mevav Nun, which is um, a settlement in the West Bank, about three kilometers west of Ramallah. If you've been to, if you're familiar with the city of Modi'in, and you stand in Modi'in and you look to the east, you'll see that there's mountains looming over Modi'in, and that's where I live, in those mountains. So we have good friends there, the Shires, Ophir and, and Bakarim. Another Shire as well. They are neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, and 
now you also have have this to bond around i'm sure I don't we have know. this we have two other families that have lost their sons in the last in this war here in timon timon has three fallen soldiers now and some wounded and in our neighboring yeshuv area they also have three and we're very very well represented in that i too are presented in a club nobody wants to belong to which we can't even can't even imagine can't even imagine um yeah, Varda's joining us okay Varda thank you so much really we appreciate your we can't imagine how complicated difficult painful the courage it takes to be part of these conversations and and we know you do it to to get Maoz's memory and his life and the difference he made out there so Eitan was telling us about his his journey that ended him up in Israel and uh and in Barilan how the two of you met where did you grow up and how did you end up? You don't have to give the years, by the way, that you graduated high school. Women are more protective of their <laughs> That's age. That's okay. <laughs> but how did, um, yeah, how did you end up in Israel and in Barilan? I grew No, I wasn't in Barilan. I grew up in Silver oh. Spring, Maryland. And um, I was involved in Bnei Kiva my whole life. But, um, but I wouldn't call, you know, just for the social aspects. But um, the during eleventh grade, I was invited to join a group of the, the through Bnei Akiva um, that that joined the Second March of the Living, mm-hmm. and um, and we did like a whole preparation for that um, actually through the I think through the Federation in, in Washington, the Jewish Federation. Like I got a they subsidized most of my trip. And we did like many classes to prepare us about, you know, Jewish life before the war. And then um, and and that being in Poland and being um, being in Auschwitz on Yom HaShoah and then flying to Israel and being in Israel for Yom, Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzma'ut, that's when I really connected ideologically to the land of Israel. And um, I really became a very, a very, a very serious Zionist then. So, um, but I, I came to Israel for the year and I, and I went to Michlala in Bait Vagan, and I wasn't planning on staying, but uh, I was planning on going back and getting an education and then only, you know, coming back to Israel sometime in the future. And then during my year, we had a an afternoon um like a lunchtime chug with um, Rabbi Slay from the old city, if you've heard of him. And um, and he was very, very Zionistic. And be, one time I would have a conversation with him um, after class. And he, he said to me basically that, you know, I said, I'm planning on going back and I'll get married and then I'll come back to Israel. And he said, you know, that the boy that's right for you is going to be here, mm. be in Israel. Mm. And and that's where things changed for me. And I decided that I was going to stay and I moved, decided to join the Israeli program the following year. To It's a teacher's college as well. Like they have an American program, but right. it's a teacher's college. And um, and that's the year that I met Eitan, that next year. So he was right. <laughs> wow. So I, w- I want to ask both of you a question. And, and you know, it's, it's obviously putting you on the spot. It's a difficult question. I, I, I know you indirectly through family, and I suspect I know the answer. Um, but I want to ask you, when both of you who grew up in America and had every right to return to America and were on the trajectory and path your friends built a future and a life in America, when you chose to stay in Israel, did you did you even understand or did you even anticipate the implications of that decision to build a family and to have children and to have a son who would serve and what that risk meant and and looking back with this incomprehensible loss and unbearably painful loss if if you could redo it again or do it differently would you do it differently understanding the price that the two of you have paid for the jewish people um we would not have done anything differently i don't think either one of us um we have in this war, we had three sons serving at the same time, by the way. Right. And, and that, I just want to say, when that happened, like, you know, each time I had a son go to the army. So while they're in the army, you worry about it, right? Like, you know, sometimes things are, you know, heat up. I remember our, our second son that was in the army, things like, you know, they, there was, there was, we were worried that there was going to be some sort of, you know, issue down south and, and things were heating up. But I never really ever thought about the fact that if something happens, 
three of our sons are going to be in the like fighting a war at the same time. And when that happened on October 7th, although our two older sons were, were up north where things were quieter, but nobody knew, nobody knew what was going to be up north either. And the fact that, you know, that like, half of my children, half of our children were in, were fighting this war. Like that wasn't something I ever imagined, but it wasn't something I don't think that either of us would ever want to change. You know, I mean, our son was killed um, as a, a hero for all of Am Yisrael and fighting the war, like making, you know, um, making sure that the rest of the because the rest of us can live in this in can Jews all over the world and in Israel can live as Jews. So I don't think that's something we regret, but obviously, you know, it's, it's our, it's a personal tragedy for us, but. I think that we feel that it's a tremendous schut to have children that served in the army. I see that as a schut, not anything else. Um, in many ways, I really am comforted and I see it as a schut that Maoz died in the way he died. And I can tell you exactly how he died. And it was a very heroic um, life and death that he had. And those things comfort us. Obviously, on a personal level, we're very pained and saddened. But we also understand um, the bigger picture. And the bigger picture does give us comfort. And of course... I don't think we would change anything. Uh, we're very happy with our decisions. What what happens with the other children, the other boys that are in the army? Is there a protocol which says if someone's been killed in battle, then the other the other children can't go back into Gaza or they can't fight any longer? Are they allowed to stay in the army? Do they have to withdraw? So um, both of our older boys were in the army for like two and a half months, and then they were discharged. One of them is going back in there. And so they were not actually still in the army now when it happened. Um, I think that when a child falls in the army, it could affect the other children who haven't served in the army yet in the sense that I think the parents have to sign off on them going to a combat unit. Um, But I don't think it affects I'm not sure. Well, what did she say? Son, We're also learning right, the rules our now. Our son, who is married with three children and um, is supposed to be going back in the beginning, the whole month of Nissan, like through Pesach. So um, he he made it very clear that if there is anything that we have to sign, that he expects us to sign it, that wow. he's going back. And wow. there's no question about it. I mean, he is I, he is an adult with three children, so I don't know really how much say your parents have over right. you at that point. Um, and we, we have one other, we have one son who still, you know, he's 16 years old and we haven't gotten to that part yet. Um, but I think that we haven't even discussed this, but I think right. that probably if he feels that combat is what he wants to do, we wouldn't we wouldn't stop him. No, no. It's, it's, not, sure it's not just wouldn't stop him. You would act you would sign that paper. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. 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 Meaning it could be that that's not the path for him for other reasons, but right. but Maoz's death would not be what would stop us from you know from him doing that. That's, right. that's extraordinary and, and you're extraordinary. Tell us about your extraordinary son. We want to learn about Maoz's life and his life shouldn't be defined by his last moment or the way he left this world. But, you know, you mentioned Eitan, that that he lived heroically. We'll talk about that, but he also died heroically. Could you tell us a little bit so we, we can appreciate the price that, that is being paid by people like Maoz? Um, you got that knock on the door, the knock no parent who has a child in the army ever wants to get. I know of, I, I heard of uh, somebody who has a note on the door that says that there's, there's in this home, in this family, there are children serving the army. Don't knock on the door. If you need anything, call. Like that's how jarring a knock on the door can be throughout this war when someone is serving. What was that like? Well, when you got uh, tell you just a quick story about that, that <laughs> when uh, the war started, um, there was a, somebody here in our, in our yeshuv that has a dog and he went off to war and his wife didn't want to take care of the dog. So we volunteered to take care of his dog. 
And then he for came, like a month. For like a month. And then he came <laughs> back. We didn't know, like, we didn't know this couple. It's like a new couple. New couple. We didn't know what they even looked like. Like, right. you know, we had, our daughter picked up the dog from the wife. Like, we never even saw the wife. We didn't know what it was. So one day, uh, I come, we come back. We, came, we drive we, back. We drive back, and we see a soldier standing outside of our house waiting for us. Nice. And Varda was like, what's going on? Who is this? What does he want? So it was him coming. He was home from the army. He wanted to take his dog the back. Dog. <laughs> what's going on? Who is this? But, um, oh, that's how on edge. People should appreciate that. Uh, the Israeli right, families, right. that's yeah, how on so edge. terrible that it, but actually um, what in Israel, so how it's now during the war, and like we knew this also, an, a knock at the door means um means means that your that your soldier that one of your soldiers was killed but a phone call means that they were wounded so Moaz was actually the, the, everything started and if and if the soldier can speak then they make sure that they speak to the parent on, on the phone when they call so this started with um on Thursday at about 12 30 in the afternoon Wait, I'm gonna say that now or get to it I'm just talking about the phone call oh okay started with a phone call that they called us and said that you know, Moos was seriously wounded and we should pack up a bag, you know, make sure to take all of the things that we need. And then like they were probably already right outside of our house waiting. But like they said, in 10 minutes, somebody's going to come and take you to the hospital. So they purposely don't knock on the door when yeah. a soldier is wounded. Wow. So, so uh, you, take, you packed your things and, and what happened? Wait, you, Okay. Okay. Um, Wait, you want to talk? No, no, whatever you want. Um, <laughs> so we we packed our things. We were it went like this. They called us um, at first and said that he's seriously wounded. And then they ten minutes later they showed up. That's all we noted. Patsua Kashe, seriously injured, and he was in Siroko, which is in Beersheba. That's about an hour and a half from here. So the hour and a half we had absolutely no idea as to what his condition was. And the people who are taking you. They don't know. I think that's done intentionally. And we have no idea, no idea. We get there after an hour and a half, and they say, right, first thing, we're going to take you to see him. So they whisk us into the ICU unit, and we see him lying there, you know, hooked up to all the ICU stuff. And we still have no idea because there is a huge range of what injured, even injured seriously, can mean. And we know that. And then we see him. He's lying there. He's unconscious. But we have no idea. And the doctor takes him into office and he sits us down. And he tells us very uh, sensitively, but very uh, clearly that he is uh, what they call in, in, in Hebrew, patsua anush, which means, I guess, terminal. He has uh, severe damage, uh, to irrever irreversible, brain, irreversible brain damage. And there is basically no hope. There's nothing to do. There's no hope. And but he's alive still. And we don't know, you know, we expect him to progress to brain death in the next hours or in a few short days. And so from the first minute we were there, we were told there's no hope. And then we walked out of that room, obviously broken. And there in the army, there's a there's a, what's called the Ksinat Nifkaim, a wounded person's officer. What it, it basically she's in charge of liaising between his army unit and the families of the wounded soldiers in the unit. She's in charge of dealing with the wounded. She's our person to talk to. So she tells us, look, I've been doing this for 10 years. And I will tell you that even though it doesn't look like it right now, um, you've been given a gift because most parents get a knock on the door. They're told their son has fallen and then there's a funeral, but you have an opportunity that most people don't have to, to pared, to say goodbye, to part with your son. Mm. And so that's what we did the next. Uh, so we, 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 we tried to, to, to say goodbye and to part with him and not just us. All of his friends, he had a lot of friends, a lot of close friends, and his friends from all the different circles, from, from our community where we live, and from his high school, and from his yeshiva, and different rabbis, and people that were in his life, they all started streaming into the hospital. 
And, you know, in ICU, there's, you know, it's very sick people and they're, you know, you're only allowed two people in a room, but everyone knew, no, room seven, whatever they want. They can have whatever they want. Anyone who wants to come in. And uh, Saturday night, a lot of his friends are in the army. They were home for Shabbat. We had like 25, 30 people in his room on, on Saturday night. Wow. So everyone in his life came to that room and parted with him. And by Saturday night, Motei Shabbat, we felt like, okay, we had our time to part with him because we also, we understood this is a one-way thing. If, if he would continue to live, it's severe brain damage. There's no way that can be fixed. And we're ready. We're ready. We're ready to move on to the next stage. And the doctor sits us down and he says, uh, look, he's stable. He has not progressed. Um, if, I said, he said, when I spoke to you on Thursday, I did not think that we would still be here now. But he hasn't progressed. And there's a medical reason for that. And he explained it to us. And if we thought we had seen the worst possible thing, at this point, we realized, no, there's a worse thing. The worst thing is that he stays as he is for who knows weeks, months, years. And that really was a big crisis, a big, what they say, a mashbear, was a very, very hard thing. And then um, the Rav of our community, Rav Zev Rosenfeld, um, put us together with the Rav Ido Rat. I don't know if you've heard of Rav Ido Rat. Udi Rat, sorry, Udi Rat. I, I, I assume that you've heard of Machon Pua. Sure. So Rav Rat is like the Machon Pua. Uh, sorry, Rav Udirat. I get his name wrong. Rav Udirat is like the Machon Pua of end of life. Machon Pua, mm-hmm. right, is the fertility. fertility. Right. And all the halacha and all the issues of beginning of life. And Rav Udirat is an expert in end of life. And he lives in Yerucham near Beersheba. And he's on the in Israel. When someone is brain dead, there's a committee that makes the official decision. And uh, Rav Udi Rat is one of the people that sits on that committee. If you want a Rav to sit on the committee, he's the Rav that would be sitting on the committee. And he's really an expert in all the issues around this, and, uh, organ donation, and all the issues that could be. Now, we weren't there yet. The doctors kept telling us, we'll talk about brain death when we get to it. We're not there yet. And that was a problem, that we weren't there yet for us. And um, he spoke with us and explained everything to us. And it was helpful. And uh, Sunday goes by, again, no change. Monday morning, Monday morning uh, was important because everyone in Maoz's life had come through and, and parted with him. And everybody that came to the hospital, I made sure to explain to them exactly the situation because we had a lot of people davening, tang to him, and in our community. And I know that they were in wider and wider circles all over the world. People were davening from us. Um, but people knew that he was severely injured. But there is a huge space between, there's a huge gap between severely injured and what he had, where the doctors say, there's no hope. And people kept telling to us, you know, oh, there's going to be a miracle. It's going to be a miracle. I'm praying for a miracle. Don't believe that. There'll be a miracle. And for us, we felt that, you know, obviously, if there would be a miracle, we'll take it. But we had to prepare ourselves and our children for the eventuality of not having a miracle. And we know that Chazal have a cloud of you can't rely on the nation. Therefore, we felt that that would be very unhealthy for us to believe that there will be a nace, even though everyone, you know, a lot of people were telling us. And so we, we obviously would be happy if there was a nace, but we felt that we needed to prepare for what Alpidera Chateva was, according to every doctor. And we had other people look at him, everyone agreed to. So at that point, we sent out a notice to people explaining, using all the code words, you know, irreversible brain damage, patsua anersh, terminally, you know, wounded. And and then we asked for people to dive in for Rachamim mm. because we felt that was appropriate. Rachamim for us, for him, for Am Yisrael. That was a more appropriate way to be navig- navigating our tefillot too. And, uh, and then on Sunday, on Sunday, his everyone said goodbye to him except for one important link in the chain of his life. And the only ones that haven't been is his army unit, his team. 
who he's been with for two years, who he spent almost 100 days fighting in Gaza with. Incredibly, incredibly close with these guys. Two years through all very difficult. He was in an elite unit. He was in the paratroopers. But within the paratroopers, there's a more elite special unit of paratroopers. Like it's called Sayeret something. Like their elite reconnaissance unit. Right. Just to explain, a regular paratrooper spends from the day he enters the army till the day he's ready to go to battle till the way he's till the day he's fully trained is seven months. In my son's unit, it's fourteen months. It's double the training, double the skills, double the what they expect of you. And so they were together for a very long time, and um, they had not yet been in. And now they were they were scheduled to leave Gaza on Sunday morning. After two months in Gaza, and uh, Sunday morning they got out of Gaza. They have make sure that they keep them on a base for one day, where they do certain, I think, uh, decompressing and psychological stuff, and they let them take a shower. There's no showers in Gaza. Literally two months without showers, and uh, and then Monday morning they send them home. But they didn't they didn't go home. They had a bus, a minibus, that took them directly from there, from the base, to Siroka, to the hospital in Beersheba, to visit uh, to visit Maoz. And they came into the room. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon already. And of course, like everyone, I explained to them exactly um, what the situation was. And they did not fully understand that until I explained it to them. And later that day, we decided to do a special, what we hadn't done yet, um, a special tefillah of just our family, the siblings and us in Moses' room. We'd all, of course, been in and out of that room many times, but we didn't ever have the whole family and just the family. So we got everyone together, took a little bit of time to do that, and um, we sat in the room with him, and um, we sang, and we said some tefillah. It was very short, less than 10 minutes, I would say. And all of a sudden, and we didn't know, we did this because we were in a situation where we did not know what to do with the kids. We have married children, we're us, we're all in the hospital this entire time. And we thought that maybe we'd be looking at a longer time than we expected. So we said, oh, should we send them home? Should we leave them here? We didn't know what to do. And one of the concerns of our children was that, you know, something would happen, they wouldn't have time to get back. And so we decided to do just fila, just to, not, just to have done it. And we didn't want to call it like a preda, but more of a, a tefillah. And so we're all in there, we're singing, it was very intense. And all of a sudden, we see the numbers on the ICU unit, you know, they have the, all the numbers, the all things he's hooked up to. They start, they start going crazy. And then they start diving down, the numbers are, are going down. And we look at each other and we realize, as we're in there, this, this is it. So all of our family, all together, just together, we all said, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elokein, Hashem, Echad. And as we finished, mm -hmm. oh. comes running in, and I look at her and I'm like, so is that it? And she said, and wow. That's how he left. And we felt that he was waiting to say goodbye to his army unit, the people that he was with all this time. And once, once he had that, and then we came in and did like a more official goodbye, that allowed his neshama to, to leave. And it wasn't brain death in the end, his whole everything just crashed. So we didn't have really an issue of organ donation. And, uh, and that's, that's how he passed. Wow. 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 We feel like it was a big scoot. I mean, we understand that that is not a common thing that people have that kind of a thing. And we, we definitely feel that that was a big scoot that he had and that we had. No question about it. What you mentioned that the way it happened was heroic and this elite unit. Do you, do you want to share with us what happened? Sure. Um, so he's in a unit called Sayeret Sanchanim, which is an elite unit within the paratroopers. And they, just to give you some background, on Sukhastara itself, he wasn't in the army. He was home from the army, but he wasn't home. He was with friends somewhere else. He had actually taken our car somewhere that's like an hour from our house. And he heard about things very early in the morning. And he realized in the unit that he's in that they would for sure call him in immediately. So before anything, he, he immediately was going to come back home where he needed to our home, where he needed to take a few things. 
But first he called us and we knew very early in the morning what was going on. And he called the, he called my wife's phone and she answered it. And when she answered the phone, he knew that what he thought was, was true was confirmed by the fact that she answered the phone. And he was, you know, he knew that, that was the right thing to do. And he, he drove to the house. He came into the house. He was in the house for about, I was in shul, but my wife tells me about eight minutes, not more like seven or eight minutes. And then he took our car and drove to his base, which is a further hour away where he parked the car. I had to go afterwards and get it. And his unit gathered there. They got the equipment and they were brought down by helicopter to Raim, to the site of the, uh, of the party. And from then until the day he fell, he was home once for 72 hours. Wow. Um, they, the first three weeks before the team ruined, before the army entered, what's it called in English? The land maneuvers? I don't know what they call it. The ground diversion. Uh, the ground diversion. Before that, there were about three weeks. During that time, they were very involved in all kinds of training things. And during that first three weeks, we actually did see him two times. Um, but he wasn't home. We saw him. Uh, and then when he entered Gaza, we, of course, didn't see him for the next seven weeks. Uh, and we also couldn't speak with him on the phone. They don't have any phone contact while they're there. Um, during the hostage exchange there was a if you recall there was a ceasefire and so when there was a ceasefire they took them they were still remained within gaza ready because they didn't know it would be with the ceasefire but they took them to a more they were in a they're in like the most forward positions there so they moved back were back to within gaza to a place where they could um do things like for the first time take a shower have hot food and they gave them phones to be able to speak with their families but we spoke to him one time in that first seven-week stint. And one other time, he had an opportunity, everyone there had an opportunity to send a recorded audio WhatsApp message. In other words, someone recorded them all. And then after he got out of Gaza, he, he sent it all to the, uh, each parent got their message from their, from their son. And uh, my, my wife was saying, on the, there's, of course, a WhatsApp group of the parents, of all the parents of the guys in his unit. And uh, everyone's writing, oh, yeah, we got our message from our son. Everyone's getting it. Oh, he told us this, he told us this, he told us this. So, oh, he's not a big talker. He's not a blah, blah, blah. He doesn't like that, whatever. So we got an 11-second message. And uh, he said, I'll say it in Hebrew, the exact words. He says, uh, mommy, abba, ani, sababa, zel, idkanti, meaning, I'm Sababa, which is Israeli slang for I'm fine, I'm great. Zehu Itkanti. I you you've been you've been notified. Like you know, you have a sign of life. Right. That's all that was necessary to say. So he's not a big uh, you know, t- verbal not a man, man, not a man of many words. He's more a man of, of deeds. Um and then he was home for 72 hours, and then they went, that was the last time we, we saw him. I mean, I remember he got home on a Wednesday afternoon and he left Motzei Shabbos. And like Motzei Shabbos, like the minute Shabbos is out, he had to leave. And now I normally, not all of my family, but I personally uh, hold Rabbeinu Tam on Motzei Shabbos. And I always said it was Bli Neder. And I almost never had to do any Malachah for that time. But that Shabbos, I had to drive him. I was going to drive him all the way back to the base because in order to make it on time, he would have had to leave on Shabbos and I was like, I'm not doing, I'm not going on Shabbos. That's crazy. I'm not doing it. And I said, don't worry, I'll drive you directly there. But in the end, he was able to get a shuttle of the army that left late, and he was able to not have me drive him all the way. So I drove him just to a certain to a certain spot, about a half hour away from our house. And I waited with the bus for him for a few minutes. And the bus came and I gave him a hug and I gave him a bracha. And that was the last time we saw him. And that was about two months before he fell. Um, now what happened with, if you want to hear what happened on the day, so this is just, and I know this is still so raw for you. We're, we're 10 days out, right? You've just, you've just gotten up from Shiva. Yeah. Monday morning. Yeah. We're not, we're not processing weeks or months or years later. This is still so raw. You literally just got up from Shiva. And during, during those months while he was in Gaza, was he in touch with his siblings? No, no. In other words, they don't have a phone. There's no phone. Because they're worried about, when yeah. Well, no. When he would call home, the, oh, so the, the after this, so we break it up into the first seven weeks, and he came home for seventy-two hours, and then the second eight weeks. So in the second eight weeks, 
um, they were able to call home more often. They would bring them phones that were appropriate for them. And he called home much more often, like maybe once a week, about once a week. Right. Um, but I'm saying they weren't serving at the same time, right? Or were they? Yeah, his brothers. Oh, the the brothers, brothers. Brothers. Yeah, no, the first part, he they were they were serving. Yeah, they, they went into the army on the 7th. On that job, as they were called and went up. And they were in the army till around Hanukkah. Okay. And Hanukkah, they let them out and told them, we'll probably be calling you back. And one of them already has, is knows already that he's going back in... I mean, they give the, it was April 8th to May something, but he looked at the dates. It came out Rosh Chodesh Nisan to uh, like Kaftat Nisan or something like that. Like it's not, the first time they were called up, it's what's called the Tzav Shemona. Tzav Shemona, you get called up and there's a beginning date. They call you up immediately and there's no end date. But the second time now he has a regular call up, which has a beginning date and an end date. So he knows how long it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and he saw it, it comes out the entire month in Nisan, so he, he immediately called his officer and said that he has a on uh, the night of Yudalad, he has a family function, and can he get out for that evening? <laughs> the Seder. Yeah, got it. <laughs> um, got it. Um, what happened, he, this, the first, in in Aza, he was in, in Khan Yunus the last two months, and they had many battles there, many battles. He had, month before he fell, he had a very serious battle where he had literally, literally bullets flying just past his head. He was standing with his officer in a house, and they looked out the window, and they seen the window across from them, um, a terrorist lifting a gun and aiming at them. They dropped to the floor, and, and the bullets were like whizzing over their head and they had to crawl on their stomachs to the next window. And um, when his officer told me, told us about this, he, he told me, these are things that we don't know. We didn't, we didn't know this about Ma'oz because as normal people, normal life, you don't know this. He told me he had no fear. He got up with his mug and he just, you know, let it rip. And uh, another guy crawled to the other window and they were able to kill, to kill those terrorists. And, all the terrorists were killed, and none of the soldiers were were injured at all. Um, so, uh, they had very serious battles in Khan Yunus, and they were there for almost 100 days, and nobody was hurt in his team at all, or injured at all, and um, until, until this last incident. And there were 17 soldiers on his team the entire time, and after this incident, the following Sunday, when they came out of Aza, the non-injured and non-killed ones, there were only seven. Wow. Um, what happened was, if you want to hear about the actual event that he fell in, um, so they're in their house. What, what they do, is they, they, the way it works is you capture a house and then you live in the house for a few days, depending on all kinds of things. And then you move on. You capture more area, capture another house, and then you live in that house. And every house you capture, you have to set it up. You have to set up a guard, set up all these things. So they were in the house, and um, they a lot of people were in, like, the main room there. It was 9 o'clock in the morning, and they were drinking coffee, getting ready to do whatever they needed to do that day. It was not supposed to be a very busy day, nothing big on their schedule that day. It's sort of like the what they call Shigrata Milchama. The the regular like you get into your regular routine of the war. I mean there is a certain there is a certain routine. And a grenade was thrown into the room. Um how the terrorists got close enough to throw a grenade is something that is part of the investigation. There's a few theories. Are all these little things we don't know yet and there are the army does a very uh, in-depth investigation into exactly, exactly what happened. And they have told us that they will share that with us. And they're very transparent. They, they, that's what they told us that, you know, even if it's, you know, there are mistakes or there wasn't mistakes, we don't know yet, but we tell, well, we're going to know everything in the end, but it takes time to do the full investigation. Anyhow, um, a grenade is thrown into the room and the grenade in and off. And every single person, there were a lot of people in the room and everyone in the room was injured. My son was not in that room. My son was sleeping in an adjoining, in, a, in another room in the in the in the apartment. Now, 
I will say that as a parent, um, for many, many years throughout his entire life, it was always difficult to wake him up in the morning. Always, always difficult. Now I know how to do it. You throw a grenade in the next room, he jumped right up. And he kept running into the room. Everyone there else, everyone in the room is injured. They had a paramedic and they had a medic, a regular medic and a paramedic, which was a higher level. And they were dealing with the wounded, but it wasn't enough. It was a mass. There was a lot of people injured. I think maybe 12 people that needed medical attention at the same time. So he starts helping with the medical attention, going from, from uh, wounded soldier to wounded soldier. Uh, all his other people who were there who told me that he was like a machine. He was going from soldier to soldier. And I think the paramedic was like, and the medics were like yelling, do this, do this, do this. And his officer, they were dealing with some more seriously injured. And then his officer uh, was injured in a very, in a major artery in, near his neck. He was, you know, gushing blood. And um, I always did a certain technique called packing where you take a certain type of gauze and you have to basically stop the bleeding by pushing it into the wound in a certain way. Usually something that medics do. The regular soldiers aren't really well versed in this. But, um, you know, he had to do it and he did it. And that saved his life. Like they told us he would have bled out for sure. Um, and while they're dealing with the wounded, it wasn't a random throwing of a grenade into the house. This was a sophisticated planned attack on the house. There were at least five um, Hamas um, terrorists who had a planned attack on the house, which is not the usual in Aza. And usually in Aza, they jump out with their RPGs, which is anti-tank or anti-anti-personnel, and they try to shoot it, and then they... You know, almost always, they're almost always killed, but sometimes they kill some of some of the soldiers. This was a planned attack, and the grenade was just the opening gambit, uh, gambit of this. And the idea was to draw them out. So there was a whole battle going on outside of the house with other soldiers. And my son, Maaz, was busy tending to the wounded together with the paramedic and the medic. And, um, and then they had to evacuate the wounded. The way the evacuations work is that there's uh, armored personnel carriers called the uh, Akhzari, and some of them have like, it's almost like an ambulance inside of them. They have uh, doctors and everything, and they like pull up, and they have to take them from the house to there. It was downstairs. They had to carry them downstairs and into the Akhzari, and then the Akhzari drives them a little further away where a helicopter, where the, the helicopter lands, the helicopter lands for a few seconds. They load up they load up the wounded and the wound, and they're taken. Um, and they're taken to the hospital. So um, we were told by a soldier who came to the shiva who wasn't in. He wasn't in this because he was on a on the top, on the roof of a house a little further away. But he watched the whole thing unfold from a rooftop. And he said, "You see, Maoz, come down with the wounded guy. Go back up. Come down with the wounded guy." Understanding that there's like firing and shooting all around. You go back and up and up and back until everyone was. Everyone was tended to and everyone was taken away. At that point, when they finished dealing with the wounded, he ran to his mag. A mag is a very big, very heavy machine gun. That was that was his weapon. That was he there's one mag in a in a team, and he's a mag. The mag is for giving heavy cover fire. And whoever carries the mag has to be very, very strong because it's a heavy thing. It's the type of thing that nobody wants to do it. And that was his job from day one in the army. And his friends told me that everyone else that, that was, was supposed to be king of found ways to get out of it. It's a very hard thing. It's very heavy. And all these long marches that they did, it was all with the mag. So he runs with his mag up to the roof. And on the roof is the magad, the, the commander of the, whole, of the whole larger unit, the whole uh, battalion, I guess you would say. English, together with one of his, his uh, communication soldier, who's always with him. And he, the communist soldier, soldier, the Kashar, was shooting his regular gun at the at the terrace. And Maoz comes up, and this this soldier's parents came to the shiva, and they had spoken to him. And the way that it was described to us, that they heard it from their son, in the middle of all of this, suddenly Maoz shows up with his mug, and he had a big smile on his face. This is what they said. And he says to the guy, you know, like, step back with your little, like, toy gun, because compared to a mug, a regular M16 is like not it's like it's like nothing. It's like a toy. It's like doesn't do anything compared to a mag. The mag is a heavy, strong 
weapon. So he's like, oh, let me take care of this. Like, step aside with your little, uh, you know, toy over there. And he steps back and he comes forward with the mod and he's giving cover fire from the roof with the mod. And that made it so the two terrorists, there were more, we know afterwards, but at the time, the two terrorists who were in the house across from them, very, very close, like a feet, feet away, like very clear, very close. His mod made it so they couldn't leave the house. It, 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 it helped because they couldn't leave because he's giving cover fire. The minute they would leave, they'd be hit. So he, uh, it's called the Lira Tekotan. He trapped them in the house. This is going on like 20 minutes and he's just keeping them there the whole time. In the meantime, they brought a tank and the tank shot at the building and the building crumbled on top of them, killing the two terrorists. But when the tank shot, he was very close to it and a piece of building shrapnel fell off oh, yeah. and went into his eye and into his brain. And he fell like that with the mug. And 38 minutes later, which I was told is the fastest time in the entire war, he was in the hospital. Hmm. Um, so basically, the last hour of his life uh, was spent tending to the wounded, um, one of which we know for sure he saved his life, um, and, and basically keeping the terrorists at bay and making it possible for the tank to kill them. We, when we were in the hospital, there were other wounded soldiers there from, from this same uh, thing. And um, one of them, inside their house, besides his team, there was another unit from Okets. Okets are the guys that are the dog handlers. They have attack dogs and they have bomb sniffing dogs. And they were in the house together with his unit. Um, and uh, their commander was, number of them were wounded as well. Uh, their commander was wounded lightly, pretty lightly. And he was, at the time, he um, was, was calming him down because he felt a wet on his whole back. And he thought that he was seriously wounded and it was all like blood. And Moz rips off his clothes and he's looking for the wound. And he says, no, you got shrapnel to the schlucker. The schlucker is like a water pack that you yeah. carry. Oh, yeah. So it punctured the schlucker. So he says, this is just water. And he calmed him down. And in the hospital, he came down to uh, Moses' room. Moses, of course, was unconscious, and he held his hand. It was very moving, and he was, like, crying. He says, thank you so much for taking care of me. And also at the funeral, another guy from Okets. These are guys that he, he didn't, doesn't know. They just happened to be in the house for, for a few days. Uh, a guy comes up to me on his wheelchair, and he says, Moses carried me down the stairs to, to evacuate me into the into – Moses was very, very strong. He was very strong. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, for that. So, you know, obviously we're, we were moved by all those things. And um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to tell you other things about Maoz, not just. Yes, please do. But let me ask you his, his name. I know that he was uh, incredibly strong, had a lot of strength, yes. uh, was in Kung Fu and yes. other athletic, very athletic, yes. other, other yes. athletic feats. Maoz, Oz is strength. Where, where did he get the name Maoz? Why did you give him the name exactly. Maoz? We were going to call him a different name for one of his grandfathers. And that was a plan. He's our fourth. We have six children, five boys, and then a girl. Moses is the fourth boy. And on the day that he was born, I called my brother in America and his wife, and they wished us Mazel Tov. And that was in the afternoon in Israel and the morning in America. Later that afternoon in America, unexpectedly, out of nowhere, my sister-in-law dropped dead. From an, an uh, what's it called aneurysm or just completely unexpected out of nowhere. The same day that Moaz was born, I flew to America to be with my brother Shiva. He was young, married, two small children, and I came back just in time for the like to get to the bris. And in that time, we felt a need to name our child something that expressed something about what was going on, and we felt that the word Maoz. What is a ma'oz? A ma'oz is a fortress, a place of strength, a place that you go there and you get strength, and then from there you go out and then you come back to it. That's the essence of what a ma'oz is. Hashem ma'oz chayai. Hashem is a place that we go to there to give us strength. And we felt that we, at that time in our life, because of that tragedy, needed to get strength. And so we named him ma'oz that hopefully he would be something that is a source of strength for the, us. And he was his entire life. That sounds like a physically strong, athletic, spiritually strong. I know he was 
um, tremendous relationship with Hashem and was a Hezder and, and uh, may have been quiet, like you said, with his words, but his actions uh, demonstrated his relationship with Hashem and his devotion to, to Am Yisrael. So tell us a little bit more about, about him at 22, all that he had accomplished such a young age. Uh, from a very young age, from first grade already, had a very hard time in school. Um, learning how to read was very difficult for him. He had certain learning disabilities. And throughout all the years in school, school was hard for him. Um, here where we live, almost all the boys go away for high school to dorms. And in Israel, um, getting into what we call a good high school, okay, although, you know, there's a debate about that, is extremely difficult. It's like getting into Princeton. Like some of the schools that these kids go to, like where he went, like it's like, there's 60 spots for 800 applicants. Wow. It's very competitive, some of these places. And he had a specific school that's like that, that he wanted to go to that school. And uh, they accept kids with learning disabilities and all that, but only a certain amount. You know, like, and they'd be like, oh, we already accepted two or three like that. That's, we can't accept more for this year. And he only wanted to get to that school. So he fought for it and he got in. And, um, and throughout high school, school was hard for him, but he did it. You know, in Israel, we have a thing called Bagrut, the matriculations. He got the Bagrut. It wasn't easy for him. He worked very hard. And then after high school, he, he decided he wanted to go to a Hezder Yeshiva. And he wanted to go to a specific Hezder Yeshiva that he liked because he liked the guys there. And he liked the rabbis there. He liked the atmosphere. And he wanted to go there. So he goes and he does a Bechina and they test him on his Gemara learning. And the, he was being tested. And, and all this was told to me by the Rebbe now. And he saw it. He was, he was very weak. He was very weak. And he tries to tell him in a gentle way that maybe, you know, here we learn Gemara all day long in this particular yeshiva. It's, that's right. like the big thing here. Maybe it's not the best place for you. Maybe, you know, and they didn't, they didn't want to accept him. And he was very weak in Gemara. And he wanted to go there. So, and all this I'm telling you, I wasn't involved in this. He did this on his own. Hmm. He went and spoke to a guy from our community who's an older guy there. He knows he has sway. And that guy spoke to the Rosh Yeshiva and convinced him, and they accepted him. And when he got to Yeshiva, he asked for help. He went to the rabbi and asked if he could have a chavrusa with him. He went to older guys. He went to stronger guys and he asked to have chavrusa with him. And the learning with him, and I heard this on the shiva from multiple people. They all confirmed this is how it went. He'd walk into the base medrash and open the Gemara, and they sit down. The chavrusa would read the first line of the Gemara and explain it to him. And the others would be like, I don't get it. And you know and he'd explain the second time. I don't understand. A third time. I don't understand. Again and again. Till he understands. Okay. Move to the second line. Explain him the second line. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. Till he understands. Third line. Same. Fourth line. Every day he would go into the Beit Midrash and he would be a male. He would be working very hard. To Break understand. his teeth. He was a male, but Torah. He wasn't going to be, you know, giving shear there. He wasn't what we call in Israel. Mavrik. He wasn't going to be the uh, Pose Kador, okay? That was clear. But he was a male, Batara, every day. Throughout the entire year, it went like that. He came in and he fought in order to understand the Gemara. He was a Lochem in the Beit Midrash, Hamash. That went through a year. They start the second year. And then uh, in the second year, uh, midway through, he felt a little like He's not giving 100%. He feels what they call in Israel, al-kotzim, like he's sitting on, he's getting antsy, I guess. So he said to himself, okay, I'm getting antsy. I'm not able to give 100% in the Beit Midrash. This is the time to go to the army. The problem is that um, his in Hezder Yeshivas, some Hezder Yeshivas go to the army in August, and some Hezder Yeshivas go to the army in, May, in March. And his Hezder Yeshiva wants, goes in August, but he wants to go in March. So he worked it out to go in March because he, even though he was going to the army, he wanted to remain within the framework of the Hezder Yeshivas. Hmm. The problem was, is that when he got to the army, he was so good that he got into this higher unit. And there you can't do it in Hezder. So he decided to leave the Hezder. And the, the difference is, is when you're in Hezder, in the army, all the other guys in your unit are Hezder guys. So you're with all from guys. But here he's with everybody. There weren't a lot of from guys in his unit. There's only one or two from guys in his unit. So, like, you're on your own. And the way I, I would say it is that sometimes you see kids. I see it in where we live, and you see it. 
then high school from kids. They're like, ish. They're, they're, you know, you have these guys that are burning, learning, and, and, uh, and you see them in Israel, a lot of guys with the payas and the gardos, and they're like a burning flame of talking on roofless. He wasn't like that. He was like what I would call, you have in the Parsha now, Ner Tamid, small hmm. flame, but constant. He did what he needed to do. Gemara was hard for him, but but he... He always had a safer. Always had a book with him? He always had a book with him. Everything he needed to do. He davens, talks properly, you know, and because of that, he was able to thrive in an environment where other people around him are not from, because... It, he, when you're a smaller flame, the huge flame requires so much maintenance. If you're not in yeshiva, it's very hard to maintain it. But the strong but small ner tamid is something that can sustain you even in that environment. And that's why he did very, very well. Yeah. He would throughout the army every time he had a few minutes break. And this was told to me, like just not even realizing that's a big deal by his non-religious uh, unit guys. He would pull out this little book and he would learn it for five minutes. And then every time, what was a book? This was the book that he loved and studied and it was very important to him. It's a book called Mesilat Yisharim by the Ramchal. And, and he would learn that book. They had, he worked on his midot. In the army, they have a thing where the whole team sits once a week and they encourage the guys to say what they don't like, criticize the other guys because they want them to get it all out there. And to, he refused to take part in that. He said, if I have a problem with someone, I will speak to them privately. I won't say it in front of everyone. He refused to take part in that. He worked on his midot always. He had chavruta. They didn't call it a chavruta with one of the non-religious guys. He introduced him to Misilat Yisharim. And he sat here at the shiv and he told me, he gave me this book. We used to learn it mm. in the art together. Since since uh, his, he fell, there has been a Basilat Yisharim WhatsApp group of a daily learning Yisharim in his memory with a five-minute shear twice a week that in about five minutes had over 300 people already. Uh, wow. Wow. So he, he, he was like a, a masmid in what he did. He did things, he did it clearly, but he was able in that way to be in an environment with non-religious people um, if you have another minute, I'll tell you one more thing. I don't know Wait, what your time yeah, is. Sure. I have two minutes because then someone's coming from the president's office or something to our house. Um, his One of his rabbis who he used to ask halakhic questions to showed me questions that he asked him throughout his time in the army. And he showed me a question from the 10th of October when they still had their phones. This is when they were in the kibbutzim there. They were looking for terrorists that were still hiding in the fields and in the things. And he, they were staying in the homes of kibbutznikim who evacuated their homes. And at that time, there was a big balagan, and there were it was like like a big problem of food. They didn't have food, so there was a, so the guys were like cooking like rice and pasta in the homes of these kibbutznikim. So he asked his rebbe, is a halachic question of can, can he eat that? And so he said, "Anilom the odres." I'm not really starving, you know, like it, that's how he starts it, but it wouldn't be allowed. So the Rebbe wrote in Vadai Mutar, it's Mutar, and explains him why, because you're in a battle, and Ben Yomo, and all the things. Okay, fine. Three weeks later, he's in Gaza. Gaza had a similar situation. They're in houses. They're in kitchens that are equally not kosher to the kibbutz kitchens. They, except there, they equally don't have food in the beginning. But there, they don't have phones. And I'm thinking to myself when I heard this, if he hadn't asked him that question, if he wouldn't have had the opportunity, in Gaza, he wouldn't have been able to ask. So two, two options. Either the most likely option, I think, is that he wouldn't eat it, which would be very hard because everyone else is and the food was scarce in the beginning. Or option two, that he did eat it, but he would feel guilty about it, which is also not something you need when you're in the middle of this. But he had the psaac in his pocket, so he knew mm. already and I feel like Kashbarhu Hu made that whole situation on October 10th, crazy situation where in these non-kosher homes and they need to cook. That whole, I mean, have you ever been in that situation? I certainly haven't. They, he created this whole thing just so he would have that sock in his pocket when he's in Aza. It's amazing that you can, after losing a son 10 days later, be talking about HaKadosh Baruch Hu and something good that he did. For many people, they lose their faith when the Wi-Fi goes out. 
and you've lost your son, and you're talking about Hakadosh Baruch Hu Hashem, God doing something kind. Could could you? I know I know that we're we're closing up. We have a last few moments, but can you talk about your relationship? Maybe it's too soon. Maybe it's too raw. Maybe it's too public. But something about the faith, the challenge of having faith even after such a difficult loss. I'll tell you. It's been a whirlwind the last 10 days. We had the days in the hospital, then we had the Shiva, and in the Shiva, we literally had hundreds of people here every day. And only now we're really starting to go back. I haven't gone back to my life yet, I would say that. The most difficult part of the Shiva for me by far was when we had to get up at the end of the Shiva and rejoin our life. So I think that there's still a lot of difficult things for me emotionally and dealing with the grief. I think that's mostly ahead of me, not behind me. Mm. So I don't feel like I can answer that right now because I, I feel like, you know, let's talk in six months. Right, right. We appreciate that honesty and that that's a very real and raw and validating to others answer. And so we, we appreciate that. We appreciate all this time, you and, you and and Varda joining us. And I'll end the way we began. I know Rabbi Brody feels we feel our heart is with you. And, and it, it must be painful to tell the story the way that you did. Not only the wonderful parts um, of Moza's life, but but the heroic way that he left this world. But his memory will, will continue to be carried on by your telling the story. And and we we can't express our, our love and our appreciation and our support and our hope for your comfort strongly enough. I just want to show you a picture of him. Yeah. This is a picture that we put in the paper of him. This is his mug. You can't see it, but it's right. Wow. But he always had this smile. Wow. 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 A beautiful smile. Yeah. May you find a lot of comfort and uh, and a lot of strength. And thank you so much, Eitan. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Catch us next time for another peek behind the Bima.